I want to tell you about Doing Justice, a new podcast from Cafe Studios. It's about a prosecutor's role in our justice system and is hosted by former U.S. Attorney Preet Bharara. Wait, I know him. <laughs> the show asks if we should allow an elected official to run for re-election while under investigation. It follows a sex worker who was robbed and gets her day in court. Preet explores the key elements of cases from the unique perspective of the prosecutors grappling with urgent moral and legal questions. Subscribe to Doing Justice wherever you're listening now. This is Jeff from Seattle, and I just need more. So I went to patreon.com slash partners in crime media, and I got more every week. Join me. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is Crime Writers On. Crime Writers On is the original true crime review podcast that digs into true crime, pop culture, other podcasts. And this week, a wealthy businessman spent years sexually assaulting vulnerable women at his island retreat. It's not Jeffrey Epstein. It's Canadian fashion giant Peter Nygaard. We're talking about the CBC podcast, Evil by Design. Plus, when Woody Allen faced accusations he molested his daughter, it was ultimately written off as a fabrication of his jilted ex, Mia Farrow. A new documentary explores the allegations and why the filmmaker got a pass. We'll review HBO's Allen vs. Farrow. Join me to get that done. It's going to be a laugh a minute, folks. Oh, it's going to be fine. Joining me to get that done and more is my real-life husband and true crime co-author, former TV journalist and love of my life, Kevin Flynn. Hello, Kevin. Hello, Rebecca. Also with us is journalist, true crime author, former defense investigator, licensed private investigator, certified cat lady, and certified pet detective, Laura Bricker. Hello, Laura. Hello, Rebecca. And finally, our captain of woke cynicism, the author behind the noir novels known as a city trilogy, host of the Strange Arrivals podcast and our Patreon book club host and newly shorn man, Toby Ball. Hello, Toby. Hi, Rebecca. You're looking Bye. very neat, Toby. Like very. I, I don't. Yeah. yeah. You can, uh, <laughs> what happened? Oh, you it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't, uh, doesn't translate well to uh, the podcast world, but I did get a very close haircut. Yes. You look like that uh, guy who ran that cult. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Mar- Marshall Applewhite. You're <laughs> You look like a combination of Wyrick and Colin Mockery from uh, Whose Line Is It Anyway? Yes. Yes. We I'll want with the Wyrick part of that. We want Toby to join that cult because his name would be Tabodi, remember? Tabodi would be a <laughs> yeah. great cult name for you. Yes. <laughs> Troubling. Hey Kevin, yeah. I see you have a fancy glass there. What what are you drinking? Are you drinking one That's of it. my tropical drinks? So it's called the Limetown cocktail and mm. I do it like that. No, this is ju- it's just orange juice. It's just a screwdriver. With special ice yeah. and special orange juice. Yes, very special. You want to explain why? Why is it special? Listen, I, I don't I don't want to in any way make any of our listeners, especially those who live in Texas, feel like we think we have it hard because we know we don't. But we do not have potable water right now. It is oh. a whole thing. Our um, we live at the top of a giant hill, and you know we're in septic and well, and we have um, a water treatment system that basically turns our water from being made of granite and iron and rocks into like drinkable water. water. Um, and our water is usually delicious, but our water treatment system uh, crapped the bed this week. 
And the people had to come and take the tank away that actually does the water treatment. So now we're just like getting the straight stuff. Unfiltered oh. water. I took a shower and it smelled like pennies this morning. Uh, nice. our, we're even giving bottled water to the dogs. It's real bad. Yeah, we're told that like you can still wash and shower in it, but you shouldn't drink it or cook with it. So, And Ooh. that means no ice with it either. Yes. Or no orange juice. We make orange juice from concentrate. So I went to the store and... Bought a carton of orange juice oh, like an animal. That's a, a bad, decadent. bad idea. Oh, from the underground storage tracks right. of the yes. secret orange juice that yes. Rebecca has uh, with told a fla- us. Oh, with a no. special flavor pack. Yeah. <laughs> I'll tell you, I have, yeah. I have ruined everyone I've told this to. I've ruined orange juice. It comes in a bottle or a carton for everyone I know. Listeners who haven't been with us a long time, look it up. Orange juice from concentrate is actually orange juice. Orange juice in a bottle or a carton, carton yeah. unless you literally like saw someone squeeze the oranges or if it's like $17, it is not orange juice. It is water flavored with special orange flavor packs and it has been stored in underground tanks maybe for years. Buy yourself the concentrate. Do yourself a favor. In other words, it's Tang. <laughs> yeah. And I also spent $1.99 on five pounds of ice. Yes. So this Ooh. is every. Wow. So there's no Flynn water in I any of the, this cocktail. I have the iron ice in mine. I'm, yeah. I'm braving it. And I'm also, I'm, I've also used the vodka that uh, Toby creates in his bathtub. So it's oh, uh, yes. Wow. That's some Wait, good stuff. What did I miss? The vodka and orange, baby. <laughs> I didn't get any of Toby's vodka. <laughs> That's probably because I don't actually make any in my house. I'd rather drink the iron infused water. <laughs> it's a Kevin Flynn invention. Wow. Have you guys ever thought about like if you had a bourbon brand or a vodka brand or a tequila brand or like a winery, like what the name of your brand would be? I'm no. just curious. I haven't either. I'm just curious if any one of you guys has. Because it's like um, it's like a real vanity thing for famous people, right? Yeah, to have right. like yeah. Yeah, like the cat's meow. I don't know. Something <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> perfect. Ball vineyards. Yeah. Ball vineyards. Ball vineyards. <laughs> Laura's drink would be red wine mixed with Coca-Cola. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, don't knock it till you try it. I'm bringing it to uh, Plum Island next year, oh, and you're going to drink it. All right. All right. You know what would be great? It would be great if you brought that, and because and, by then we'll have forgotten about it, and you just say, yeah. I made a cocktail, yeah. and we try it. And it would be wonderful to get our unfiltered reaction to that completely disgusting well, I'd rather it filtered, if you know what I mean. <laughs> Does it just taste like Dr. Pepper? <laughs> it just tastes like fizzy sangria. It's good. Mm. Really? And it gives you a little bit of a, like, pick-me-up from the caffeine. It's good. So it's like uh, vodka and Red Bull, except worse. Worse, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but it's cheaper. It's economical. Yeah, yeah but if you're going to mix vodka with Red Bull, you don't need to use, uh, like, Kettle One or Grey Goose or whatever. You can just use, like, whatever that cheap one is. Uh, like Tito's. Three olives. Three olives. <laughs> All right. Uh, we've got a pretty intense podcast to record tonight. So you guys ready? Yep. Mm-hmm. We got our laughs out of the way early. That's true. So moving on with a programming note, both of tonight's reviews deal with descriptions of sexual abuse. We'll be focusing on the investigations, the journalism, the media and the other issues around the stories. But we will not be going into descriptions of the actual assaults as they appear in the podcast and the documentary we're going to be reviewing. Still, we know this topic can be disturbing. So take care if you choose to listen. Leading off. If this were a poor man, he would have been in jail decades ago. Decades ago. He is hid in plain sight, making a spectacle of himself and calling himself a playboy. No, he's not a playboy. He's a child abuser. 
Wealthy Canadian fashion designer Peter Nygaard threw lavish pamper parties for women at his giant estate in the Bahamas. But they were just a pretext to lure and rape beautiful women, women from a poor nation with little recourse. There would never be an official police report. It would always be something where Mr. Nygaard know where the female lived, where she was either intimidated or paid off to disappear. But a simple property dispute began to unravel his decades of rape and sex trafficking combined with his power moves to blunt scrutiny. The multimillionaire used defamation suits against his detractors, the threat of imprisonment against journalists, and the specter of ruin against his victims in four countries. I've seen a number of different traffickers operate in the different methodologies that exist in trafficking. And this was by far the most sinister the most perverse and the most violent of all of the trafficking endeavors I've seen accomplished. The podcast Evil by Design looks at CBC reporter Timothy Sawa's decade-long investigation into Nygaard's crimes. Sawa talks to islanders, unsuspecting models, former employees, and intimidated journalists to expose one of the most prolific predators in the world. Now, spoiler alert, we are going to be talking about plot points from Evil by Design. So if you want to remain spoiler-free, go to the estimated time code in our show notes for our thumbs-up or thumbs-down review. Okay, so I want to start this just by saying one thing. Let's separate the case and the story from the style and and delivery of the podcast. Can we do that for this one? I think it's actually important for several reasons. So let's talk about the case first. Now, Laura Bricker, I can imagine you having a personally difficult and angry time following this thing. Yes or no, is that what happened to you? I have to tell you, I listened to this while I was doing a jigsaw puzzle by myself. My family was off skiing. And I don't think I've said fuck this guy more for anything we've ever listened to. My anger just kept growing and growing the more I heard about these allegations and these accounts from young women. So yeah, pretty much I spent like, I listened to the whole thing in like one afternoon or most of it. And it was pretty much just fuck this guy. Ah, fuck this guy for like all those things. So Laura, you must have loved my favorite person in the podcast. One of Peter Nygaard's uh, quote unquote girlfriends who was actually, you know, a victim of him. Celebrity mm-hmm. who it all the way near the end of the podcast says. So I don't give a damn about protecting no fucking body. That's a fucking predator. Did you love her as much as I loved her? Because I kind of felt like she was the Greek chorus for every woman listening to this story. Yeah, I was glad when people that had been involved in this inner circle actually spoke up against him like that. And there was another woman that didn't. And I had some words for her as well. But yes, when there was people that but there was also that fashion model, the one with all the Instagram followers Mm, who was all about just like in it for the money and the lifestyle and like boob implants, basically, if I remember correctly. So, Kevin, you cannot ignore the parallels between Nygaard and Jeffrey Epstein, right? Nor uh, uh, Weinstein either, because it seems like if you are a predator and you have unlimited resources, you are going to do a lot of damage, right? Because there are, I mean, well, look at some of the parallels. Like with Epstein, he, he at Nygaard ended up creating a beautiful compound on a, you know, on a luscious island where, you know, famous people would come and visit and it was wonderful. But it was basically his, uh, his trap for bringing, you know, women who are impoverished and living in this nation and don't have a lot of options. But they're like, oh, come, come be pampered. You know, dress up nice, be pretty, and you'll get massages and foot rubs and you'll get all the wine you can drink and, and everything. And a modeling contract. 
and a modeling contract, and there's no strings attached, right? And and just like Weinstein, he also employed these incredible measures to discourage people from talking, to intimidate the press. It's just amazing what sins money can can hide. Which is going to be a theme of our next review as well. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Right? <laughs> couple of couple of parallel themes. Yeah. Now, Toby, like, can you talk about the comparisons between Nygaard and Epstein? It's impossible to ignore, right? Yeah, I mean, I think what kind of struck me about this, and, and I think in, in this way, it's a little bit like Bill Cosby as well, is like he has these systems, like it's a well-run machine, you know. It's it's not the, it's not like crimes of opportunity, uh, although I guess there's a few of those as well. But he really he has set up a system with, to provide him with a seemingly endless stream of of new girls, and they're basically logged in when they come to the parties and you know, with like measurements and photos and so that he's got like A, B and C lists about who he's going to invite and, and all these things. So I, I think that's, it's almost like an institution is built up around providing all, all of these men. I, I think Weinstein was a little bit different, but it worked a little bit differently, but it was the same basic idea. And then Epstein, it's almost exactly the same. You know, again, it's it's like they've got all this, you know, incredible amounts of money to make it all work and to pay off the right people and to intimidate people who might stand up. So I kept thinking about something while listening to this, um, that Nygaard apparently modeled himself after Hugh Hefner. He was called like Canada's Hugh Hefner. He wanted Mm -hmm. to have this like impression as a playboy, lived a certain lifestyle and was always surrounded by beautiful women. And everyone knew he was a playboy. He had lots of children with all these other women. So I just keep thinking about Hugh Hefner because Peter Nygaard used his fashion house just like Weinstein used being a movie producer to lure women sort of with acting work, right? Peter Nygaard lured women with modeling work, which sounds it sounds kind of fake because there wasn't a whole lot of modeling happening with his like dowdy brands of like mall clothes or whatever. But Hugh Hefner lured young women for decades with the promise of being in his magazine. And his magazine was a thing that plucked young women from around the world like and made them centerfolds or whatever. But here's the thing. I know that everyone is going to say, the men especially, that this was like a different time or whatever. Mm -hmm. But when you watch, and I remember watching it in the 90s and early 2000s, the reality show with Hugh Hefner and like his three girlfriends, and then all of the plethora of teenage and early 20s women that were constantly there servicing him, talking about having sex with him. Like, I, I just kept thinking... Hugh Hefner normalized this. Well, I kept thinking about Hugh Hefner as well, but I kept thinking like, boy, is that going to be the next like shoe to drop? Are we going to find out? (laughs) And listening to these, you know, stories of the parties. And I had never, I mean, I had never heard of Peter Nygaard. I went and looked him up and I'm like, oh my God, he's like, his hair is like, have you guys like looked at pictures of him? I was like, like, it's like Siegfried and Roy situation. Yeah. I was about to say, he's got to have like a Vegas, like wild animal show. It's just, um, but I was thinking about that. Like this, this, like he's a playboy. He's got all these kids. This is just how he is. Even at the end of the podcast, we have that woman, I think her name is like Tina. And she's like, we just knew we had this lifestyle of being a playboy. But I, when they kept referring to him as like this version of Hugh Hefner. I'm thinking like, God, I watched that Hugh Hefner reality show. Yeah. And and it's like the castle of all these Playboy men where it was projected as this like sexy, glamorous lifestyle is crumbling. And 
I just kept finding myself wondering who's next. Yeah. Who is next? Because it just seems like one after the other. And now it's like a house of cards coming down with all of these men, these rich, powerful men. I mean, it's it's like we had Pedophile Island with Epstein. Now yep. we have, you know, Nygaard Key. I mean, what's next? The Grotto? Toby, what I kept thinking about was the power dynamic that a lot of these women said, I didn't have a choice because like they were financially dependent on the benefits that being associated with Nygaard brought. That is a theme here, right? Like the creation of dependence uh, and your dependence might be, I want to be famous. Your dependence might be, I can't eat or can't pay rent, but you're going to let me live like in your California home fucking awesome. Like, again, we hear celebrities say that. Um, But do you understand sort of the parallels here? It's like it's not just the money and silencing. It is the promise of something that creates a codependence. But I think that's been a pattern in a lot of ways for like probably centuries, right? I mean, that, that that's just been the exploitation of women back to like serfs working on the land and mm. stuff. Certainly, I'm not saying that's fine. But I think what's different with Nygaard and Epstein and all these guys is, is well, there's a bunch of things, but one of them's the pedophilia. Another thing is just forcible rape. Uh, it's the institutionalization of getting these women there. And the exploitation is also awful. But I feel as though, like, I feel like the exploitation was like in the women of Juarez. Mm. And like, I mean, how many... How many stories have we listened to? And even if it's not like the boss thing, it's the husband. You know, I can't leave the husband because then what am I going to do? And part of this, I'm also thinking that question has a lot of parallels, even going back to the book we just did on the deep dive about Victorian England and about how women were sort of dependent and were having to sort of exchange sex for, you know, protection and, and cohabitation and things like that. So, there's a couple of different things going, and one is this sort of long history of vulnerability and exploitation, and then the other is, especially with Nygaard and Epstein, just the, the sort of like being a sexual predator almost up to sort of this assembly line kind of infrastructure, and just, you know, I mean, the numbers are just like, they're nuts. And the testimony about him waking up and like going to his little fake jungle and then having women defecate on him, like mm. that that's how he gets up in the morning instead of having a cup of coffee. It's that kind of stuff. It seems like that's what kind of puts it outside of like what would unfortunately be considered like sort of normal societal misogyny. I don't agree. I mean, I, I mean, I, I do agree with that it puts it outside of it, but I do think that power sort of infects everything. And like the pooping thing is just to me like another example of like a person who has everything can never have enough. So they have to think of another weird thing that they need to have. Like that seems mm-hmm. to be like a, a theme here. Now, Kevin, there's a catch and kill aspect of this podcast where Timothy uh, does a whole episode that I frankly believe should have been the first episode about what it's like to be a journalist covering this story. What did you think of that uh, side trip into a thing that I think should have been actually the framing device for this whole podcast? You're talking about episode six. I loved everything about that episode, the reporter intimidation campaign, all the undercover stuff. Yeah, the whole idea that there's this law in Canada where you can go to jail for libel. What the actual fuck, Pierre? And you can file criminal charges. Criminal charges. Without police involvement. Like, it's crazy. Yeah. 
Maybe you're just a little too polite, Canada. Thank you. No, I got to um, say, kudos to the CBC, though, for not being afraid of covering the story. Yes, yeah. for, for oh, still yeah. going for it. But the fact that, you know, well, everybody's going to go to jail for five years if you don't get off of this case, I mean, can really throw people off of a case. And then all of the, uh, you know, undercover shenanigans trying to get the CBC to slip up and do something incriminating in their eyes, it very much reminded me of what Black Cube did in the Weinstein case and that was exposed by Ronan Farrell, who will also make an appearance later in this podcast. So I thought that that was really interesting, not just because I'm a former journalist and I sort of like dig on the things that journalists do to get their stories, but just again, to see the the lengths that they would go in order to compromise the people who are trying to get to the truth. But I mean, I guess if you're that bad... If you're that evil and you have that amount of money, you may as well throw it and play dirty in order to keep the secret. Because, I mean, how else are you going to keep a horrible secret like that unless you're exerting a lot of influence? And the taste of the kind of fight Peter Nygaard would put up against the CBC. Surveillance, threats, private investigators, and lawsuits. In the end, because of our reporting, my colleagues and I would find ourselves facing criminal charges and a potential five years in prison. Laura, what do you think about the journalism aspect of this podcast? That was one of the things in between me saying, fuck this guy. I was like, good job to these journalists. Because, you know, we hear right off in that first episode that they've been working on this for, you know, we've been hearing rumors about Peter Nygaard for like these many years, like decade, like over a decade, like two decades in some cases. But the fact that they had been pursuing this and pursuing this for as long as they had and stuck with it. Can you imagine? Like, I mean, I just was thinking of that moment when he's finally charged and they're like, okay, validation for everything we've been working on here, but also like sticking with the story despite all of this pressure to drop the story, to being threatened. And for me, I was thinking about like, who are the heroes of this story? Like the people that I'm like really rooting for that I'm like, and these girls in the Bahamas, out of all of the victims of Peter Nygaard, these girls that are poor and young and, you know, some of them they said were living in houses without running water or with dirt floors along with the, you know, people that challenged his zoning practices. But for these girls to be the ones that came forward as like Jane Doe number one, number two, and number three to finally take him on, I just thought was stunning. Now, Toby, what's weird is that it took some environmentalists and an environment dispute over like the degradation of a, a reef and like the expansion of a beach to start really poking holes in this whole thing. What did you think of that? Because that was another um, seeming side trip into a whole other part of Nygaard's conflict-filled life. But really, these people who were like pro-environment and had financial backing because there was this rich neighbor of Nygaard's were the first ones to sort of be able to get a foothold into taking him down. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, that was certainly, I, th I thought the whole thing about the Bahamas was an interesting part of the podcast. Like, that's one of the ways in which it's very different than Epstein. You know, Epstein had a, a Caribbean island, but he was basically bringing people down there. It wasn't exploiting the people who were there. His only neighbors were dolphins. Yes. So, you know, just the fact that he's in this, this quite poor country with all this money and, and, and basically can buy off politicians and police and all, and all this stuff. 
And so that it does take another North American with an equal amount of money to kind of be able to stand up to him, right? Bahamians took the initiative to like push the issue, but in order to have the resources to kind of combat what Nygaard was able to throw at people, they needed a benefactor with sort of equal money. And so that was the chink. That, but a, but that a benefactor also became a foil because the fact that he had a benefactor with money was gave fuel to discredit the accusers because they were saying, you're just being paid by this rich guy who just wants to have his pristine beach to accuse me of rape. So it was sort of a double-edged sword, right? Right. It was, there was an opportunity for pushback, but it was also, you know, without that, do you think we would have gotten the toehold? I mean, it just seemed like other attempts to go after Nygaard, the monetary corruption was just so much that it was you couldn't really get anywhere. I mean, you could have as much truth on your side and as much activity. But as they said, you know, it's a small island and we've got people marching in the street chanting your name. It's an intimidating thing. And those guys, the courage it takes under that situation to kind of stand up and, and continue on with your mission is pretty amazing. So, you know, it's not an exact parallel, but it's sort of like taking Capone down on taxes. It's like you, you need to find a place where you can get a foothold and, and then you can try and bring the rest of the stuff down. It's like like Jeff, Jeffrey Epstein's crimes were about cross-state stuff. It's like that. Now, yeah. um, Kevin Kai. Uh, Nygaard's son mm -hmm. is a big presence in the podcast in the later episodes. He describes growing up with his mom, very separate from his dad, and going to visit his dad, and his dad being this big character and this big presence, him finding out he had all these siblings as he was a teenager and, and, and later on, and him just sort of accepting it because, like, my dad is who he is. He's this big mogul. He's a playboy, blah, 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 blah. He worked for his dad for a while. But then he witnesses something that... You know, after kind of getting a sense that something isn't right with his dad, he then witnesses something that turns him over the edge. And he becomes a primary source for this podcast. Where I'm looking at his eyes because I was thinking to myself, who is this guy? Did I just see what I really thought I saw? And that means that so many other things that I've could have maybe suspected, maybe they were real. What do you think of Kai both as a witness and, for lack of a better word, as a character in this story? Well, he comes already with some credibility because he ought to be the one defending his father. He has all the financial reason in the world. He's got $900 million worth of reasons to defend his father and keep that empire alive. But he doesn't because he knows better than most who his father actually is. And it was very painful for him to, you know, go from being the worshipful son who, you know, has this mercurial father that he travels the world to go meet and wants to impress to find out that he's this child molester slash rapist slash tyrant. And so he ends up being, I think, very, not only very uh, compelling, because he also has to deal with his feelings of love. Uh, for somebody and the the loss of that love and that impression of, of, of who his father is. I'm trying to think back as to how many times we've heard it done very well where we've had a relative of a perpetrator, maybe in the clearing. I think maybe they did it well. Uh, I'm trying to think of some other cases. I None, none really kind of pop up, but the idea that... How about the thing we're about to review in like five minutes? That could be that, too. <laughs> but I'm thinking about, you know, somebody who can articulate, yeah, this is a bad person, but... And there was a, a counselor in this that we hear in this series who says, 
yeah, you know, you feel guilty about, like, it's okay to love that person and yet still be disappointed and recognize everything that they did was wrong and do what you can to correct that. So, and this certainly takes nothing away from the great interviews we hear from all the victims, but on a sort of, you know, sort of on a different musical note, you have Kai there sort of explaining what he saw from the inside. And uh, yeah, I mean, because the Nygaard people can deny, 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 but they... They can't deny the sun. Now, Laura, we hear Kai describe how his father set his brothers up to be statutorily raped. Uh, Like, what did you think about that? Like the whole, like, you're going to become a man now, so I'm going to send this much older woman and pay her to have sex with you when you're 15 and 14 years old. I mean, I have, as you know, a 19-year-old and an 18-year-old, and I feel like... I mean, it's bad. It just make me made me sick listening to that. What did you think when you heard that? Yeah, it it did because I same as you. I was thinking, God, I have a fourteen year old in this house, and I and I look at his friends that are his age, and I'm thinking about these boys who are describing being just confused and not and like the shame that they felt as this was happening to them, but also that it was the same woman both times, yeah, despite yeah. the age difference. And that it was like, I can't remember if it was like a decade or more uh, between the two boys. But, it, you know, I just, I have some questions about the actual childhood and origin story of Peter Nygaard when I hear a story like this. Because we hear his origin story and then we hear it's kind of bogus. And I guess that was the thing I came away from this whole podcast thinking a lot about was like, what makes somebody this evil and this depraved and this just able to inflict such horror on people with no regard for what he's doing? And then when you hear this story about his sons and and you hear, you know, Kai, I think one of the great lines Kai had, he had said something like, my father didn't have like a skeleton in his closet. He had a whole graveyard. Yeah. And to have somebody that has a whole graveyard in their closet, I'm just like, is this genetic? Is this situational? Like what made him this evil? Narcissism, Lara. It's narcissism. It's a but thing. Like, it's actually it's a personality really disorder. It is a thing and it is a... Awful. I mean, we'll talk about it, I'm sure, in the next half of this episode, too. But something that Toby said a long time ago sticks with me all the time, where he talked about, I think it was when we were talking about Epstein, and then he talked about Harvey Harvey Weinstein. And it's like people say, maybe we were talking about Catch and Kill, that like... You know, it's amazing that this predator ended up in this job where he has all this access to, like, beautiful young women. It's like, no, he got into this field so he could have access to lots of beautiful young women. Like, the personality comes first. And he's broken for some reason, for sure. Um, Before we do our review, I I do just want to talk briefly about the podcast itself and how it's put together. And, like, I'll just kick it off by saying... I found this podcast to be too long, very confusing in terms of timelines, and making a lot of assumptions about what the listener knew while presenting it. I, for one, really had no sense until the final episode of what the current legal situation is. I had very little sense of the timelines between the different sort of the Bahamas story, the Canada story, the California story. And I found myself very disoriented and actually sort of frustrated because I wanted to care so much about this. 
But I found the podcast to be like a little bit of a difficult listen because of the way it was put together. Toby, am I alone in that in that it just felt lugubrious in a weird way? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I was thinking about the same thing. And and maybe some of it is the relative amount of time that different stories were given. And then it seemed kind of grouped almost by like theme or something. Like there was the Bahamas thing. And then there was like back in Canada stuff. And then there was this like ending thing that was a combination of the sun and, and, and the investigation, stuff like that. Yeah, so it did seem a little bit long. But I think the other thing, though, is is that it's pretty comprehensive, you know? I mean, I feel like that was the thing with getting Kai and a couple of Canadian women who ran into him in the, his time in the Bahamas. I mean, it just seemed like the amount they had on him was so comprehensive that it may have been hard for them to kind of say, well, this isn't necessary, or that isn't necessary to kind of create this sort of comprehensive airtight case. But that being said, you know, I think this could have been six episodes and and been just as effective. Kevin, so can I just ask you a question? Mm -hmm. Because I know that there is a well-intentioned reflex to make a story like this victim-centered, and it should be. That being said, the frame of a Canadian guy starting in the Bahamas, to me, just it was like I understand the reasons why. But when you talk about episode six... And the length of time that was put into this reporting and the the consequences that were felt also by the journalists in addition to the victims, didn't you feel like, I mean, I mean, maybe it's just me that it, it was almost like it worked to its detriment that they sort of fell over themselves trying to do it the right way as opposed to the interesting way. You know what I mean? Mm, I I don't know. I think I lean more towards what Toby said as far as it being sort of grouped into themes. Um, One of the things I'll just say that as someone who wasn't familiar with the story, I felt like I wasn't in the beginning given a, a real sense of the scope of what this story was going to be. I mean, we started with a Jane Doe which I think maybe is, you know, a a logical place to start. But we're eight minutes into the podcast before we're oriented that Nygaard has been arrested. But still in that description, we don't hear a lot just, you know, and they tried to stop us from doing the story. The idea of like all these different themes leading up to what his story is, is not really hinted at. And unless you've decided, well, I'm going to regardless listen to all the episodes Which are long, by the way. Which are long. Maybe they don't need to be that long, but I just, you know, I thought, uh, I wish I had been oriented a little better. Just two other quick points. I wasn't sure that Timothy Sawa was the person that should be telling the story at first. I didn't know why it was him, because sometimes in, you know, a story where you want to be sensitive about sexual assault, a woman can sometimes bring the warmth to this kind of thing that a, a man can't, however... He really demonstrated that he's been working on this story for a decade, so it really is his story. And lastly, when there's a criminal pattern, you know, where the criminal repeats it the same way over and over again with a lot of the same stuff, sometimes when you tell the story, that the story gets repetitive because you're not writing a a legal brief, you're not making a charging statement here. In a story, in a documentary, in a podcast, it isn't necessary to give equal time to 80 different people. So in the spirit that that's meant, they didn't do that, and they did it in a way that hit each kind of crime, each instance where it, it was, you know, a 
a different kind of sexual assault to give you the breadth of his depravity. I thought that they did a good job with all that. So, yes, it was long, and maybe the individual episodes could have been shorter, but I did like the way it was put together. I would have preferred group by time versus group by theme. I think the group by theme worked to the podcast detriment. I think they, more than other podcasts I've listened to, it seemed like this one kind of nailed the three-act structure, like, very literally. You know, it seemed it seemed like it was really arranged that way, which wasn't something I'd really thought about until Kevin was just talking. But mm. structurally, I think that might have been what was going on. Anyway, sorry, go ahead. No, that's okay. I think structural stuff is good to talk about. Lara, what did you think of just sort of the construction of this story? You know what? I think it probably depends how and where you listen to it. So I didn't notice, like, I I was actually, I spent like the whole day working on this jigsaw puzzle listening to this. And so it was kind of, I was in a zone and it was on the whole time I was listening. So to me, it kind of flowed differently, I think, than if I had listened to it maybe in bits and pieces or if I was driving. I was, um, but it was very, as Toby said, it was very thorough. And I felt like it really kind of hit us over the head in a way with, just how awful all of the sexual assaults were because we did hear from so many victims and we heard so many horrible stories from those victims. All right. Well, I think we should do what we do. Let our listeners know, should they check out Evil by Design? It's a new podcast from the CBC. You can binge all of the episodes right now on all of the apps. Laura Bricker, what do you think? Thumbs up or thumbs down for Evil by Design? Um, I'm going to go thumbs up. I mean, it's not like a huge thumbs up. I mean, this is definitely something I needed a huge palate cleanser when I was done listening to it because it was it was really intense listening to the stories of these sexual assault survivors that had been victimized by Peter Nygaard. I liked it as somebody who has worked as a journalist hearing the amount of work that went into getting this story by journalists who had been following this for years And knowing that he was finally going to be held accountable in court is something that was, as I was listening, I was like, ah, thank God after listening to this. So, I mean, if you need some rage walking material, you need something to think about besides the pandemic to get you pissed off, I would say listen to this podcast. Toby Ball, what do you think? Yeah, I give it a thumbs up. I, you know, I have a lot of admiration for the, for the journalism that went into this. And I, you know, it's just a little uneven, I guess, in my mind. I thought there were some episodes that were like absolutely fascinating and riveting. And then there are other episodes that, you know, were probably important in the story, but just kind of felt like stuff that I'd heard before in other situations. It shouldn't really be a criticism of that, but those didn't sort of stick as much as, as some of the other ones did. But yeah, it's the story is really intense and disturbing. And they pretty much comprehensively have nailed them. So the thumbs up. I, I, I thought it was good. Kevin Flynn. I'm also a thumbs up. It's a little dense at points, but you have to tip your hat when a reporter travels the world, literally, to get the interviews, to make the story work. And, you know, if, if for nothing else, to not be waved off of an important story because a powerful person threatens them. I thought that that was a, a you know a really great look at what went into telling the story, but also the story of the different individuals involved. We didn't even get to talk about Rochette Ross and her role in the Bahamas, and you know the different people involved. It was it was assembled very well. I would have probably made some different edits, but overall, I think it's an important listen. Thumbs up. 
Yeah, I I can't give it a thumbs up because I just don't think it's a great podcast. I I really appreciate the journalism. The story's great. I think that Timothy, the journalist, is great. This is really missing an edit, and I felt it when I was listening to it. A story like this, I should not be bored or lose interest halfway or two-thirds of the way through episodes, and I found that myself in that position in several episodes of this. Not all of them, but several. Uh, I usually, like Laura, listen when I'm not doing something else. I listen while I walk so that I'm not distracted. And even while not distracted, it wasn't clear to me where I was, when I was, what was actually going on. It is very disorienting to talk about somebody having been charged in the early 80s with something and someone having been charged within the first eight minutes you hear about it, but then also hear, we heard from Peter Nygaard and he says dot, 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 because it gives you the sense of like, wait, is he not? Like, there was too much of that. And uh, frankly, I think the thoughtfulness of the way the themes were grouped together, I know why they did it. I know they wanted to make it victim focused. I know they wanted to put the most powerless victims up at front and center. I get it. But as a framing device, it didn't work. And I felt very disoriented through the podcast, even though I really appreciated the journalism. I think this could have really benefited from some story crafting. So thumb sideways for me. All right, Kevin, do your thing. It's business time. We're in the business section. Kevin, what do we have going on in our Patreon right now? Right now in the feed is the Crime Writers on After Show. What are we talking about? We'd like to thank the Academy. Yes. The Podcast Academy. We're going to talk a little bit about our acceptance. No. Our application and acceptance. Acceptance in the Podcast Academy. And we're also going to talk about Laura's new television obsession, Law & Order. UK. Now, speaking of Law and Order, we have on our These Are Their Stories podcast, we're running in a contest. It's called the These Are Your Stories. I named that, by the way. And uh, one lucky listener is going to join us to be the guest star and talk about an episode with us. So maybe we, more than one if we get some I, good I, people. I feel like you buried the lead here. What was that? what? That you guys, that these are their stories, was on freaking ABC on a game show. I yeah, forgot no all about kidding. that. Oh, my God. Bananas. Good job, Toby. <laughs> so if you've ever watched the um, the ABC primetime trivia show, The Chase. Which I don't think anybody actually watches. Or is but it sure. The Chaser? It's or called or The Chase. The Chase? It stars, it stars uh, <laughs> ex-Jeopardy champion Ken Jennings and two other ex-Jeopardy champions. Yeah, well, uh, in the speed round, the These Are Their Stories podcast was... A question. And the guy got it right, fortunately. Well, because the name of the podcast is These Are Their Stories. What the hell else the answer was going to be? I know. It was good marketing. <laughs> I would have gotten it wrong. No, you wouldn't have. You would have gotten it right. <laughs> but I guess maybe six or seven million people. Oh, I, okay. So, Toby, I'm going to ask you the yeah. question. Pre- pretend you're in the game. This is lightning run. Toby Ball, the These Are Their Stories podcast is about what TV show? Um... <laughs> he doesn't know. He doesn't watch Law and Order. Do I, do I have to, do, is it in a form of a question? What is no. Law and Order? <laughs> All right, Kevin, what the else? Let's Be Careful Out There podcast is about what television show? Hill Street Blues. There you go. <laughs> go ask me another one. <laughs> anyway, that was, that was, it was actually, it was, it was super fun to see uh, all over my Twitter feed the next morning. Yeah, that was fun. That was You great. Are My Person podcast is about what TV show? Scooby-Doo. Grey's Anatomy. Oh, no. All right, so go ahead, Kevin. What else have we got going on? Uh, Later this month, we'll have another Toby Ball's Deep Dive Book Club, and the book that Toby and his guests are going to be talking about is called We Keep the Dead Close. Nice. Toby, do you already have uh, guests lined up for that one? 
I do have guests lined up for that. It is going to be Deb Shudika, who's a, a professor at George Mason, Alex Segura, who oh, Alex. Uh, is the you know Zillion Award winner of a whole bunch of things, including the Pete Fernandez series, which uh, you know has gotten all the accolades, and Amber Hunt. Nice. So I'll nice. uh, star lineup again. I'll tell you, Toby, I cannot wait for your fiction switchover. I'm all over it. That's all I do is listen to fiction audiobooks all the time. I am currently listening to a 20-hour-long Joe Nesbo book, which oh, I'm no. very much enjoying. But I'm telling you, when you switch to fiction, you can book me every time, Toby. Which which, uh, which Joe Nesbo it's are you It's called The enjoying? Kingdom. It's literally a 19-hour-plus-minutes audiobook. I don't actually know what it's about yet. I'm 10 hours in. I'm enjoying it very much. It's like hardcore history. Yeah, yeah, except taking place in Norway. Wait, how do you have time to listen to all that audiobook and also listen to an eight-hour podcast? I walk uh, three to six miles every morning, Toby Bowles. Wow. It's very good. I've lost 40 pounds during the pandemic and crammed in a lot more listening. All right, Kevin Flynn, what else is in our uh, Patreon right now? Oh, well, we have um, an episode of Leave it to Bricker. Which was Laura and the kitten in the ceiling. Nice. Yeah. And I don't want to give it away, but it's always a happy ending it if uh, Laura Bricker, pet detective, is on the case. And we are going to be doing yet another Mary with podcast soon, right? Because we get Absolutely. so many questions. Right. Oh, I should mention, yeah, that's in the in the feed. We have a couple questions. One about regaining intimacy after uh, sexual trauma. Oh, the best one though is about the dick ex husband. That's my best. We have one. two two dick ex dick ex husband questions. Fantastic. Yeah, it's good. Yeah, so yeah, listen to the Married Podcast. It's a great show. It's one of my favorite things we make. It's in our Patreon. Now, Kevin Flynn, before we go out of the business section, do we have any Patreon patron saints of the week this week? Our Patreon patron saints are Carol Bernal and Isaac West. Bless you. And thus ends the business section. Kevin, should I fade the music out? Fade the music out. Moving on. It's really hard to believe that somebody you respect and... For me, somebody you really love deeply, love so much, could be capable of doing something so awful to a child. She was the movie star with a family of adopted children. He was the film auteur who doted over her youngest daughter. But Mia Farrow grew concerned that the attention Woody Allen was giving Dylan had surpassed fatherly affection and grown into something more disturbing. It's way beyond that now. What you've done to Suni, what you've done to, to, to Dylan, what you've done to Dylan, Dylan's a baby. How could you do that to her? Faced with allegations of molestation, Alan spun a narrative the claims were coached by Pharaoh, embittered that he left her for her other adopted daughter, Suni. He dodged both the law and the kind of scorn that ruins most careers, but he also left behind a woman who knew her claims of sexual assault were ignored or disbelieved by much of the world. It happens by someone you love and someone you trust. Someone who buckles your seatbelt, takes your hand when you walk down the street. It's incomprehensible to normal people because it's not normal. 
HBO's four-part documentary, Alan V. Farrow, goes deep within the case with in-depth interviews of Mia and Dylan Farrow, never-before-seen court documents, and the seven-year-old's videotaped descriptions of what her father did in the attic. The series also ponders why Alan's legacy has been barely sullied by the allegations, particularly because so many of his films feature an obsession with young women. Now, the series finale aired Sunday night on HBO, but we're going to be talking about plot points from the first three episodes of Alan V. Farrow. So to remain spoiler-free, go to the estimated time code in our show notes to hear our thumbs-up or thumbs-down review. Now, Kevin, this is not just a story about a crime and about the accusations around a crime and the process of those accusations and the fallout. It's also a story about celebrity, right? Yeah, well, I mean, it's a story about family. And I think it's it's something like if you you set, it's very hard to do this, but if you set the crime aside for a second, I think this is a very well-told documentary about a celebrity family. I mean, going through the first two episodes, I thought it was so well done. And they hadn't even gotten to the important part, which were the crimes. I just feel like it, it's been told so, so well. Most documentaries are sort of told like in this assembly line chronology this happened, show a clip, this happened, get a soundbite. And it just more feels more effortless listening to Mia Farrow and then maybe interspersing with Dylan. The way they just tell their story, it just feels like the rest of it just follows that and it isn't uh, contrived in some way. I, I thought that particularly the first two episodes were really compelling. Now, Lara, it does feel like there's a floodgate situation opening here and there are... A lot of not only credible, but famous people in this documentary talking about their impressions of this case. Yeah, I felt like the access that we have in this documentary is something that really drew me in because not only do we have this story of very unusual family dynamics with the fact that Woody Allen and Mia Farrow are living separately, she has all these children. I mean, it's 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 a very interesting setup. But then we have like Carly Simon, who was like one of their best friends talking about this. And and we have Mia Farrow. And we have, obviously, we have Dylan Farrow. And everybody that we have involved in this story is so candid about what happened. I was impressed with just that that level of opening up and sharing in this show. And I kept thinking, I was like, as I was watching, I'm like, I was like, did Woody Allen die or something? Why? Because, and I know he, he didn't, but I was thinking like just that level of. Suddenly we're getting all of it. Yeah, like, we're getting like all he can't of this. Be like, I was like, I'm like, did I miss this? Did he yeah. die? Did, did something yeah. happen? And I'm Are like, the no. libel rules no longer in place? Yeah, play? I'm like, no, he's still alive. But <laughs> yeah. just, I felt like kind of voyeuristic just because not only do we have that detail, but then we're like seeing like a lot of this is filmed in that like farmhouse in Connecticut. So I just felt like this sort of level of looking into where this all happened was just really intense. Now, Toby, we had a very, as you would put it, thumbs on the scales view of this back in the day when Woody and Suni got together and all these allegations came out. And, you know, even shame on me, like I remember seeing like Woody and Suni at Knicks games and just like sort of accepting it as as part of the cultural dialogue that a guy who had been in many, many films in which he was with inappropriately younger women 
over and over and over again now had this like very inappropriately younger girlfriend slash wife who was also, by the way, fuck him for denying this, a child of his, like in a parental situation. But I even remember sort of buying into the the narrative that we were sold that like, no, 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 it's it's fine. This is just a thing famous people do. It's It looks very different right now, right? And do you remember also being in that place where you also like sort of were like, I guess this is what famous people do? Yeah, well, I can pretty clearly remember watching a Knicks game and Marv Albert was calling the game and they're going around. And this is, you know, sometime in the 90s, probably. So it was like, like Marky Mark was probably in the crowd and you <laughs> yes. know, Spike Lee was there, of course, and maybe Michael Rappaport or or uh, <laughs> something like that. But then they did get and he's like Woody Allen and Suni Previn. And I was like, hmm, like this is I guess this is actually a thing. Um, you know, it was just there and it was not talked about as a, oh, this guy is like basically dating his child, his, you know, stepdaughter. Yeah. That's a little weird. It's so, a little, so, more than a little weird. But, it, but <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I'm obviously being facetious, but, um, I, I think you're kind of referencing, I, I, I sent a note saying that I thought there was a little bit of a thumb on the scale uh, in this documentary and it was interesting when I was listening to Laura talk about how much access we have. And I, I'm not for a freaking second like defending Woody Allen, but it does feel like there's this glaring lack of, you know, it, it really is. It's There's a lot of insight into one side of this conversation. And I'm not saying that there's like two equal sides, but that there's a whole bunch of kids who are not on the record for this, who are her kids. And that seems to me to be part of the story. So I I don't know. I mean, I, I, I totally believe the story as it's told. I think this is what happened. But I'll give you like the kind of thing that just gives me pause is when they, they had they read that letter that Moses wrote to Woody about like, you're not my father anymore, and you know, congratulations for ruining my life and all this stuff. And they, they kind of, you know, it's it's a big sort of climactic moment in that episode at the end there's like a little note that says oh yeah by the way he just retracted all that stuff later and it's like well that doesn't feel like is that is that like a super accurate way of portraying what the reality of that situation is so it just doesn't seem necessary to do that can i can i give you my take on that toby and you don't have to agree with me woody has had his day for decades and Moses has been part of Woody's day in propping up his being right and his side being true. I'll just say it. I think this documentary is one of the most damning things I've ever watched in terms of a public narrative being taken apart. And by the way, I will say I have believed for many years that Woody Allen is in fact a child molester, a pedophile, inappropriate with both young kids and teenagers. And also just a fucking creep. But this documentary, just they have so many receipts. Like they have so many, you know, they have the investigator saying he believed it and that the Yale stuff was undermined. And I, I feel like like the Moses stuff, like that's already been out in the world. 
And I, I, I'm hoping episode four lands that plane because I get what you're talking about. Like, if you don't know any of this other stuff and you go into it just with this, it's like, but what about X, Y, and Z? Kevin, what do you think? Well, I think this is a great case study in why being proactive in public relations is important because in this documentary, it is shown that Woody Allen and his representatives have been given an option to participate and they've declined. And the result is something where we certainly are not getting that story and Mia's story is very powerful. And in the beginning, back in the 90s, when Mia decided, when she believed that well, to talk about this stuff in public is unseemly or sordid or whatever. And what he did. And she decided that she wasn't going to engage in public relations, and he did so well. It really spun for decades what the narrative was. And in particular, the Yale report was particularly damaging to her side because I will say that you know, while I followed it a little bit, I knew kind of what everybody else did when the thing about, oh, no, these you know third-party experts. The Yale people said that, oh, the little girl made it up and she was coaxed by Mia Farrow. Like, oh, well, the villainization of her was complete, in part because she didn't engage with the press, and in part because it was easy to say, oh, look, she's this weird actress who's adopted all of these kids, and she's really angry about this other thing. The other thing is kind of weird, too, you know, that Woody Allen is now dating the Married stepdaughter. Married her daughter. But he did it in such, yeah, he did it in such a way that, you know, the rest of the world was kind of like, uh, that's okay. That's a little weird, but I buy it, and it has to do with just sort of the power of being able to just sort of say, you know, these are not the droids you're looking for. To just to be able to cast a spell. It's just so fucked up because, like, I'm watching this, and then I was like, "Jeez!" And I was having, like I said, I was like, "Did he die? Did I miss that he died?" And so I look up, like, "What does Woody Allen think?" And the fact that they're still married just blows me away because once you watch this documentary and you realize she never had a boyfriend, this yeah. was like her first sexual experience. Yep. And she's still with him. Now, I, Laura, can I ask you a question <laughs> woman to woman? Okay, Rebecca. <laughs> I find myself wondering what else Woody has done in the ensuing years since this relationship. We hear yeah. that he's married. He's gotten together with this person who had no world experience and who is now married to him after being basically, I I am not uncomfortable saying, in my opinion, uh, you know, maybe statutorily raped by him, taken yeah. advantage of by him by for sure. And don't you wonder like what he's been able to get away with because now he has this pick and roll of this like legitimate marriage with his daughter, which by the way, everyone says is not his daughter. It is. I'm sorry. There are vacation videos yeah. and photos. I mean, it's Kevin. It's like it it's, wasn't like poaching his wife's best friend. No, no. it's like Kevin. It's, it was something. Yes, yeah, it's it, fucking it isn't creepy that. and yeah. wrong. Yeah, it is. I mean, can you believe? I, this is the thing that I can't believe. Going back in time, I cannot believe that anybody was like, no, no, no. Woody's in the right here, while he was dating his stepdaughter. Like, it's fucked up. No, it is. And that was the part I, I like. I and I'm looking at pictures of them now, and I'm like, how is this? even like okay it's not okay and how is it still happening but I did find myself like I'm looking and then I'm looking at the pictures and I was reading their response to the documentary and I was thinking I guess I have a hard time believing that nothing else has happened in the ensuing years 
after everything else that we know happened. So I, I guess I wonder, having just talked about that other podcast where like all these allegations come out, I kind of wonder like what's the next shoe that's going to drop in this case? Like is this documentary going to bring some more information to light or, God, or not? Hope so. I, I guess I kind of have that suspicion that that might be headed our way. Now, Toby, you address something in your notes that actually I was thinking, so I'm going to give you permission to talk about it because it's not weird. It's it's a real note, I think, that's worth noting. And this is the thing that I also wonder, it's sort of subtext here, is Mia Farrow herself, and this is in no way her fault, is, uh, I, I don't want this to come out wrong, but I'm just going to say, she's very childlike. And in her entire career, she describes these relationships that have power dynamics that are imbalanced. She's with Frank Sinatra, much older, very imbalanced uh, power relationship with uh, Woody Allen, very imbalanced power relationship. And it was almost like you even hear it in these taped phone calls. And it turned out both of them are taping them, which is bananas. Hello? Yeah, Woody? Yes, can I call you back? I'm, I'm, I'm on the phone with Mia, and I have been for the last 10 minutes. I'm not saying anything, but I'm just listening and taping. God bless you. Bye. Okay. Hello? Hello? Hello. Okay. All right, well, do what you have to do. I don't think it's I don't think it's in your best interest or in the children's best interest. You mean your best interest, right? She is approaching it in a very, even though she knows what he has done, a very hopeful, almost like childlike way, like we can fix this still. And it just seems to be a dynamic that Woody really exploits in this situation. I mean, did you find yourself thinking that too? Yeah, and then there's also Andre Previn. Yeah, you know, and again, it, it's it it really doesn't have much bearing on what Woody did, but I don't know if I have much insight about it. It's just something that kind of struck me is that for whatever reason she did end up in these in these situations with herself being a very well known famous actress somehow ending up with older, even more famous men. You know, in situations where, again, as you were saying, the the power dynamic doesn't favor her. And then being the actress in all these movies of his and him basically telling her, according to this, like, if it weren't for me, you wouldn't be in anything because yeah. you're too old and, and all this. So people, you know, you're washed up. Thank God for me casting you in all these movies, like 15 of them or whatever in 10 yeah. years or whatever. Like she was also was. doing fine, by the way, before she got with Woody Allen. <laughs> but yeah. 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 I mean, she's, yeah. I mean, I didn't even actually realize that that she was sort of in all those Woody movies and, and, and not much else because I mean, she's a legit name actress. What is Woody Allen considered too old? Yeah. And Kevin, I have a question for you because we talk about this a lot when famous people are taken down by scandal. Bill Cosby, mm-hmm. Harvey Weinstein, et cetera. The separating the art from the artist. Right. What happens when the art also contains pedophilia? I mean, that's a real that's, question. Yeah. Like, like Woody Allen has signaled through many, 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 many of his films. And we hear about the archives of his like previous scripts where he's crossing out. She's 15. No, she's 16. No, she's 17. Like the art itself is perverse here, right? Yeah. I'm glad that they provided some context because I haven't seen enough Woody Allen movies and I'm not as big a fan that I know the whole Woody Allen oeuvre. Toby does. He can talk about that. Oh, he can. Okay. Well, the idea that, look, you know, Bill Cosby had like some passing joke in a 1960s bit about, you know, slipping Crazy Mary's Spanish fly or something like that. But not like anything else like that for the rest of the career, his career. You can't say there were a lot of breadcrumbs 
that Cosby left. But for fuck's sake, when you look at it, it's all throughout Woody Allen's career. And yeah, he's working out something on the page and in film. But interestingly, it's not his characters are struggling with the idea that they're attracted to young women. It's more or less along the lines that it's these okay. young women want him. And it's okay. he, he's the, yeah, it's okay because he's the one who doesn't, you know, who's the, the shrinking violet, as someone said. His films groomed us. It's, it is interesting. I mean, we could also have the discussion about do you cancel Woody Allen's movies for you? You know, do you? Yes. You know, Mike, if you're not going to listen to Michael Jackson's music, if you're not going to watch the Cosby show, I think you still can separate the art from the artist if you want to appreciate it. But, you know, if you decide I'm never going to watch a Woody Allen film again, that's fine. To me, it's like the least, it's the least bad thing that can happen to you is right. being sad about a director yeah, who you right, love, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? I mean, I like, I'll tell you one thing that infuriated me is like all the men in this movie who talk about all the things they know, and it's like, oh, it's just such a shame. I just love his movie. Like the New York Times reporter? I'm like, fuck you. Like, that is not important. Well, the proof is I could never watch a Woody Allen film again after this. It's, it, it's still, it still hurts, and it still wrenches me to say that. It's just, it's still not easy to say that. I'll tell you, I remember, like, I grew up in New York. My parents loved Woody Allen movies. The only ones I liked as a kid were like Sleeper because it was like dopey and funny. But like I remember watching Annie Hall with my mother because it was her favorite movie. My only thought about Annie Hall as a child was, why is that pretty woman attracted to that ugly, creepy guy? (laughs) (laughs) Toby, what were you going to say? Well, I was just going to say, I I think... It's a little hard to watch like Manhattan now, yeah, I would imagine. Oh my God, you know? yeah. I, I, I think there's, again, like I liked Woody Allen because of the movies you're talking about, like Sleeper, Take the Money and Run, Love and Death. Like when I was in you know elementary and middle school or whatever, I watched them and I liked them. His later movies where he does, you know, his obsessions start to really come to the fore again and again and again. And I mean, I think part of the reason why it wasn't more of a tell was because there's you know, there's a hell of a lot of books and movies that have some aspect of older guys and younger girls. Like even stuff like John le Carre is like filled with like older guys and and part of showing that they're sort of aristocratic or whatever is that they have these like college age girlfriends who are like really good violinists or something. I mean, it's just like one of the sort of cliches of it. So I can't imagine, like, who, who's sitting back to watch Manhattan now? It's Ugh. just, I, I, I don't understand. And even seeing it, like, Mariel Hemingway, she's, what, like, 16? When she, she looks like she's 12. Like, it's incredible. Yeah. Laura, one of the things that comes up is this, like, crazy psychiatrist guy, who yeah. turns out is bananas, who coined this term parental alienation syndrome, which is not a real thing, except that it is but ironically, it's usually done by men, not women, <laughs> yeah. creating false allegations of child abuse. Usually it's men saying that their partner is creating false allegations of whatever. Yeah. But I remember growing up and thinking parental alienation syndrome like was a thing. I mean, yeah. I mean, so that's what Woody accused Mia of. And then he had this. For people who haven't watched it, they had this uh, this guy who wrote books who was a professor and a you know a doctor. Turns out that guy is crazy, and it basically created this myth that mothers make up child abuse allegations 
to gain traction in divorces. What do you think about that, Lara? Yeah, well, I can say, you know, this has come into my life many times over the years. My parents had an extremely contentious divorce. It lasted like 18 years. And I remember this term being thrown around. And at the time, you know, I was a kid, I didn't think much of it. But then when I became a defense investigator, and I was working on criminal cases, and this book in particular, and that same psychiatrist, and I remember that being talked about in defense cases when we had cases where there were sexual abuse allegations with children, and that this was a thing. And so then hearing it in this situation and watching what, you know, I perceive to just be this sort of like Woody Allen PR machine spin that in such a way that, you know, he holds this press conference and, you know, right down to like bumbling and like acting like he's nervous and everything when you know he's not because he's prepared all of this. Uh, over the years, you all know that that uh, I've been reluctant to speak with the press and have assiduously avoided publicity. But because of all the rumors and innuendos and cruel untruths circulating over the past week, I feel that I have to make a statement. Also, you hear him on those tape phone calls, and he is not fucking oh, nervous. Oh, those tape phone calls, Rebecca. He is not ah. Woody Allen in those phone calls. He is not the bumbling, oh, self-effacing. Calculating. He's a cold-ass motherfucker yes. on those phone calls. Yes. I have to tell you, the one that I like was like, ah, I like, lost my mind over was where like they're talking on the phone. And, and I found... I guess listening to these tape phone calls, I just, like you were talking about before, like I find Mia Farrow to just be like, she's like trying. They're like going to therapy. They're going to the therapist. She keeps, she's got this like, like in the beginning, this sort of like optimism that this is all going to work out. And he's just sort of, you know, like placating her. But then she says to him, are you taping these phone calls? And he's like, no. And then he flips over and he's like, hold on. I'm talking to Mia and I've been taping her. I'm like, fuck you. I mean, I don't know if you yelled at the TV, but I did. Rebecca. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I think she had more reason to tape him than he had to tape her. Now, Kevin, the documentary takes a, a formatic switch that mm-hmm. like took me off guard. Um, episodes one and two are just straight documentary. And then episode three, there's uh, a break in from the director and narration. Over the course of our three year investigation, we gained access to those boxes, along with police files of the case, additional evidence affidavits, sworn testimony, and private audio and video recordings. I think I get why they did it. The material they have and and why and how they're using it. What did you think of that formatic break and what do you think of the intention behind it more importantly? Well, I found it, I found the break a little a bit jarring to be honest because we had not had the presence of a, an omniscient narrator. I mean, if that's even the term you can use in this case, but some kind of narration about, you know, what, what we're going to see. It was basically letting all of the people tell their stories, right? And then in order to ha- bring someone in, in order to make finer points, to give a voiceover was, you know, I thought really was very odd halfway through. Can I ask you a question? Yeah. I found myself thinking... The first two episodes are so point of view. Mm-hmm. It's Mia and Dylan, Mia and Dylan, Mia and Dylan supporting stuff. I wondered if that sort of episode three beginning with we have this, we have this, we have this, we have this was sort of a proxy for 
all the people on the other side wouldn't talk to us. So here's the documentation we have that shows you, the viewer, that this is not a one-sided hit piece. Like, we have receipts. Right. So this is a style thing that either the way that you normally would have done it was that when it came to that, that you would put up cards. Yeah. Right? There'd be no voice, no additional person there. You would read the important stuff. And it is important, and, and that's not the point about you know whether it should be included. Or the narrator comes on and says something in episode one and something at the beginning of episode yeah, two yeah. just to set it up, just so we've heard their voice, just so that there's a signpost that somebody might come in and talk to us later. And it just was all of a sudden like, this voiceover like what the hell is this yeah um i understand like why you wouldn't do it maybe in episodes one and two because it flows so beautifully with just dylan who we do have to talk about yeah we're gonna talk about her next and 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 mia but um yeah i just was like um okay well we'll go along with it it doesn't ruin it for me but i was like oh well i might have done something differently now toby like the, the public narrative here is that you know woody and mia had their breakup and that dylan became sort of like the pawn uh, Mia coaching her to say things and Woody denying them and then suing Mia for custody of her, which in retrospect is so fucked up. But Dylan herself is at the center of this. And I'm not going to ask you if you find Dylan credible because I think we all agree that she's credible. But don't you think that her telling her story and being at the center of this is like fundamentally important? I mean, I, I find that really to be the heart of this whole thing is not it's not Mia it's not Woody it's it, for me it's Dylan what's in that tape feels like that is who I am when you strip away everything else when you look underneath all my layers down to the very center of who I am I am that little girl on the tape yeah, I mean, I don't think there's much of a documentary without it, right? I mean, that's that's the heart of the story. If you're not getting it from her, uh, you know, it's Mia Farrow's story and whatever they can fill in around it as as sort of proof. So, yeah, I, I you know, when you remove everything else from it, I mean, it's really the story of a of a of a child who was sexually abused. Yeah, and then it just happens to be that her parents were these very wealthy, famous people. And, and, you know, there's all this other stuff around it, but that's the heart of the story. And so having her talking about it and then these like almost impossible tapes of her talking about it to Mia, like in the days following in ways that, you know, it's, I mean, you can't really watch them and walk away and be like, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know how you dispute that. So, yeah, I, I again. I mean, I think that's what makes the documentary. I mean, I think you know, without that, it's it's just a completely different thing. Laura, I just one final thing before we review it because I think about this all the time. When people talk about false accusations, right? They talk about either money, you're trying to get something, you're trying to advance yourself in some way, you're trying to whatever. Dylan is an adult. She's an artist. She has a successful life. She has nothing to gain by underlining this accusation of something that happened to her when she was a kid. Yeah. You know, as somebody who worked in the legal system, like, you know, I mean, very occasionally there are false allegations or whatever, but they're always for a reason. Yes. I find myself thinking like, me and Woody broke up decades ago. Like, Mia is not looking for money or custody. Dylan's not looking for anything 
what is the benefit of saying my stepfather, father took me into the attic and touched me at this point other than to get the truth out and finally have the world see like what this guy is. I mean, is there any ups? I mean, like that's all I keep thinking about. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think that we're in an era and like a time period now where more and more of these stories are being told and it's empowering other people to come forward and tell their stories. And I feel like you know, the fact that Ronan Farrow was so heavily involved, obviously, in the Harvey Weinstein case, I just I kept thinking that played into it in a way because it was like showing how that case came to light and that case came out. And it's like this is the time that people are saying enough is enough of this type of behavior and we are standing up. And I think in this case, the thing that really, when you're talking about working in defense and working in cases and kind of assessing cases, the thing that really stood out to me was the number of people independently that witnessed things happening with Woody, that when you take all of these independent pieces and make a big picture... There's no other conclusion that you can come to about what happened. All right. Well, let's do what we do. Let our listeners know, should they check out Alan V. Farrow on HBO? It's a difficult documentary, but uh, one that I think a lot of people are going to be talking about. And I will say I agree with a tweeter who said the person who's happiest about the Megan and Harry interview right now oh. is Woody Allen <laughs> because it aired at the same time as episode three. But I really hope America catches up and watches this whole thing. Laura Bricker, what do you think? Thumbs up or thumbs down for Alan V. Farrow? So I'm going to give this a thumbs up. I think this was well done. I The first two episodes I felt were really well done. Episode three didn't quite fit with the same format, but that was okay. I think this is a really good look into yet another person who is in a position of power, position of, you know, notoriety in terms of somebody that everybody knew and somebody that's finally being held accountable. But we have a really good window into this case. Um, I was walking, I was rage walking with my friend Maggie yesterday and she also was watching this and we walked four miles because she was so enraged over this documentary. And her husband was like, why are you still watching this? And she's like, because it's good, but it makes me so angry. So um, I would say give it a watch. Toby Ball, what do you think? Yeah, you know, I give it a thumbs up. You know, it's I, I kind of find it frustrating. And I, and I hear what you're saying about how like Woody had his time where like he was in the ascendancy as far as like getting his narrative across and, and this is sort of a corrective. But I also think you make your argument stronger when you don't feel like you've got to put your thumb on the scale a few times. And I just don't think they need to in this case. And I, I don't think they do it a ton, but I think they do it some. But I think there's there's enough there that it's pretty damning and it's, you know, it's it's really well made. The archival stuff they've got is incredible. I think some of the analysis they do of Woody Allen's oeuvre is, uh, <laughs> is nice pretty interesting. Nice Toby. Clap, clap, clap. I'm very urbane. So, yeah, I mean, I think there's there's a lot of really, really interesting stuff. And I just have that one kind of caveat. But, uh, you know, it's obviously it's a very high quality thing. Kevin Flynn. I'm a thumbs up for this. Um, it's a tough watch. And as a listener pointed out to me one time, it ought to be. It ought to be a tough watch uh, because it's a tough subject. Nevertheless, I found it compelling. Uh, 
and it moved along really well. It tells the story in a great way. And I tell you, I come away liking Mia Farrow more than I ever did. Yeah. She certainly was portrayed, and I always sort of just thought, because I'll just say I didn't give a lot of thought to this case, right? And perhaps I should have. But I just sort of went along with the idea, yeah, she seems like she's a little nutty and you know, Hollywood, whatever. And this really does sort of open your eyes to what really happened. And you got to say her name, Dylan Farrow. And when you see when you see her as a child, it's really moving. Yeah, It's really moving, not, not even just talking about the stuff where she explains what happened to her. But just seeing her run around, swim in the swimming pool, and just sort of knowing what's going to happen or knowing what's happening behind the scenes is is very moving. I think it's great that if you haven't watched it right now, you have the option of watching the whole thing at once because one episode is over. I wanted to get to the next one. Or if it's the kind of thing that's really rough, you can pause it and come back to it when you want. You have the option. But I think either way, you really should watch. Yeah, I love this documentary. I'll tell you, it made me think about a lot of things, and these are not spoilers because they're actually part of the record. Mm -hmm. Uh, We talk about, you know, people putting themselves in positions where they can do the kind of victimizing that they want to do. And I just see it very differently after this. If Harvey Weinstein became a movie person so he can be exposed to a lot of young actresses, I believe, it's my opinion, that Woody Allen was attracted to Mia Farrow because she had a lot of kids. There's a reason why he lived across from Central Park from her and they never lived together. He could do a better job victimizing children if he's not living with the mother of those children. He's in his own space to do I am just saying there is so much about this documentary that is damning and eye-opening. But it's also, to me beautifully made the direction is lovely the subjects are portrayed in a way that is real it doesn't gloss over their imperfections i think mia farrow's imperfections show here i mean her naivete shows here her her hubris in a way of sort of thinking that everything's going to be fine all the time shows here it's not portraying mia farrow as as perfection you know in contrast with woody allen it's portraying mia farrow as a real person I don't know. I really love this documentary. And as somebody who finds it very, very difficult to watch things about kids being abused as a survivor of abuse myself, I'll tell you, this is entertaining. It's compelling. It's beautifully made. I cannot give it a high enough thumbs up. Big thumbs up for me for Alan V. Farrow. Now it's time for my favorite part of the podcast, a little something I like to call the crime Crime of of The week. (laughs) There's controversy churning in Canada. Canada. Residents are complaining that their butter is too hard. The normally staid Canadians say their butter won't soften and spread at room temperature and, quote, they want answers. Some wonder if it has to do with the palm oil supplements given to dairy cows. Others question production regulations on farmers. Or are producers using different churning techniques to keep up with pandemic-era demand? There are others who say there's nothing wrong with Canadian butter, that it's the same as it's always been. The only difference is quarantine-inspired bakers are using up the whole sticks instead of their usual pats, and they just never noticed before. No one seems to believe what the obvious answer is. It's a conspiracy led by Big Margarine. Big Margarine. So, panel, uh, Laura Bricker, why do you think Canada's butter is so hard? Laura Bricker, I'm going to start with you. Uh, It's really excited. 
Trey Bowen, what about you? Why do you think Canada's butter is so hard? I thought of all kinds of sort of sexual Canadian jokes, but Laura beat me that, to all that of them. That actually wasn't even <laughs> my answer. I was going to talk about this whole other thing, and that just like came out of my mouth, Toby. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. Well, you've ruined it for me and all of Canadians. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know. It, it's a weird... I think actually Laura's theory is as good as any of those real theories that they put out there. Kevin Flynn, why do you think Canada's butter is so hard? It's not. It's just happy to see you. God, no. You know what it is? What? Butter fluffers. Butter <laughs> <laughs> oh All right. We should probably get it on that note. Before we do, Laura Bricker, do we have a cat of the week this week? Uh, we have had so many good nominations for cat. I know. I just forwarded you one by email from another listener who emailed us while we were taping the show. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I, I just can't go on. But I'm going to so I'm going to give a brief nod to Rachel Hall, who's cat edgar has a little um stroller that he rides around in because i'm thinking my cats (laughs) might like a stroller so thank you for the idea but i have to you know go with this hamster um oh my god from melanie fordyce and the reason i have to go with this hamster is because its name is see you next tuesday oh nice (laughs) and real yeah wait actually the the word or the uh, the euphorism the euphorism Yes. Rebecca, that I taught you. So that is the name of Melanie's 18-year-old's hamster. And this is why the hamster has that name. What has the hamster done? Bitten me five times, two of which caused blood. Lured me in with cuteness, no aggression. Escaped three times, one of which I caught, two of which has been over three days. Number three, Crawled on me in the middle of the night like a spider, then ran away again. Stole food and then ran away again. Number four, ruined three water bottles. Number five, chewed a hole in her cage. And number six, attacked a dustpan. See you next Tuesday is currently on the loose upstairs evading capture. Do you think that they like say, see you next Tuesday? Or are they just like calling like... Is that what they're doing? Are they just like, I didn't, hey, there's some peanut butter for you. Are they doing that? I kind of wonder. I don't know. I mean, maybe that's why the animal is evading capture. I'm not sure. But um, I just, I th- there was a lot of grievances and a lot of things going on with this hamster that I had to bring to your attention. <laughs> All right, Laura Bricker. Uh, so our listeners can reach out to you and submit their otherwise inappropriately named animals no matter what the breed or variety to be cat of the week if they want to do it on our facebook page or facebook group or email they can but if they want to do it on twitter how can they find you there at lara bricker and tell you both folks want to solicit uh hair pics of your new haircut from you how can they find you on twitter it's not gonna happen um (laughs) can i just clarify did you say it was an 18 year old hamster no the hamster belonged to her 18 year old offspring. Oh. I was going to say, I've only seen a hamster live to like four. That's yeah. like an old ass hamster. Uh, it's at Toby Ball on H. And Ken Flynn, if folks want to reach out to you, how can they find you on Twitter? I'm at Kevin P. Flynn. And if you want to follow me on Twitter or Instagram, you can find me at Reb Lavoy. There are photos of parkas and dogs and walking and food and Kevin there. You can also follow the show on Twitter at Crime Writers On. And I encourage you to join our really, truly incredible community 
in our official Crime Writers on Facebook discussion group. This week alone, I kicked out three assholes and let in like 60 amazing people. It is the safest space on the internet. Support the show at patreon.com slash partners in crime media and you will get the Crime Writers on After Show, Married with Podcast, Toby Ball's Deep Dive Book Club Podcast, and Laura Bricker's Leave it to Bricker Podcast. Our theme song was composed and performed by the incredible Ty Gibbons. Our line editor is the incredibly handsome Olivia Burdett. The executive producer of this fine program is Kevin Flynn. This show was recorded in the Ogle Loft above the bodega in Bay St. Louis, Mississippi Studio, otherwise known as Studio C, the closet in our New Hampshire basement where we debate the viscosity of various dairy products. Oh, yeah. On behalf of all the crime writers, thanks so much for listening. We will catch you later. Later. Kevin just farted in the studio. It was super gross and not really smells in here. But he did it. He did it in a very special way he does where sometimes he um, like knows it's coming and he times it with like a song lyric. And this time he went. You would tell me more. And I said, oh, well, oh, well, oh, well, oh, oh tell me more. <laughs> That's the good stuff. Yeah. yeah. Is in crime media. media.